CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 26 Healing the Economy The European Silk Road Cooperation and Recovery in CEE Hello and welcome to another episode of Central Europe Explained Today we will talk about healing the economy, the European Silk Road. In 2018, a study by the Vienna Institute for International Economic Studies, WIIW, proposed the European Silk Road as a response to China's new Silk Road. By connecting the industrial centers in the West with the populous but less developed regions in the East of the continent, it is argued to generate more growth and employment. The study finds that the development of a European Silk Road could create two to seven million new jobs and could increase GDP on average by 3.5% in wider Europe over a 10-year period. Eastern Europe in particular needs an upgrading of its transport infrastructure. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Mario Holzner, Executive Director of the WIIW and co-author of the study. Mario, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. As a start, how is the overall economic situation in the CEE region during the COVID-19 pandemic? And has the EU learned from the financial and economic crisis 2007 and 2008 with regards to healing the economy? Well, I wouldn't say that it is great, but nevertheless, by comparison, it could be worse. Let's put it that way. Um, there are a few reasons for that. Uh, one reason is that the region uh, has a much lower share of services sector in its economic structure. Uh, and given that the pandemic was affecting particularly the service sector and less so manufacturing, um, this is uh, one reason why economy-wise the GDP development was not that bad in Central East and Southeast Europe. There are a few exceptions, obviously those countries very much dependent on tourism, for instance, like Croatia and Montenegro um, fared uh, much worse. But on average, the reductions in GDP were smaller and the recovery is uh, interestingly also better. Why is the recovery better? Well, uh, partly also because most of these countries did not have this stringency in measures uh, against um, COVID as compared to Western Europe. So if you wish, one could argue that they were sacrificing health, public health for uh, better growth. And another reason is that uh, the, the countries still are less developed than uh, Western Europe and hence growth rates are still higher in, in any case. Uh, and there is also, at least for those countries, members uh, in the European Union, there are also um, transfers that support uh, growth, even in periods when maybe the private sector would not invest, EU transfers go directly into cross-fixed capital formation, i.e. investment. So these are more or less um, the main uh, reasons. And uh, yeah, I think uh, overall, uh, not only Eastern Europe, but also Western Europe profits from a better crisis management in the EU overall, um, as compared, for instance, to the global financial crisis. I think lessons have been learned to a large extent, um, definitely on the monetary policy front, 
Uh, I think uh, the activities of the ECB are very important to support growth or at least to avoid worse outcomes in economic terms um, throughout Europe. There have been also programs for non-Euro countries, some uh, swaps and, and, and what have you. So providing liquid, liquidity also uh, to, to the neighbors was a very good idea, uh, helped a lot. And, uh, but also on the fiscal uh, policy front, we, we have learned. Um, so there is no austerity at the moment. Uh, on the contrary, big fiscal packages on the European level uh, support, um, if nothing else, then on a psychological level, uh, wider Europe and uh, provides some uh, sort of uh, a positive outlook for, for economic development in the years to come, which is very important for private agents to uh, plan and to invest themselves maybe in the near future as well. Now, as a reaction to the pandemic in the new multi-annual financial framework, there is also the mechanism of the EU recovery fund. And uh, could you tell us a little bit more what we could expect where the CEE region would benefit from this new mechanism? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, benefits for wider Europe, are again, similar to what I have said just before. Uh, I think there is a, uh, this is a mass psychological argument. There is a, Uh, some sort of willingness on the side of the EU to do something about uh, recovery, to invest in important areas of investment uh, for the future. So uh, I think a third of the funds must be used for the green transition. Uh, 10% of the funds, if I'm correct, uh, used for the digital transition. So highly important issues, uh, not only in Western Europe, but also in Eastern Europe. Uh, and uh, in addition uh, to that, the relative uh, importance of uh, these transfers are particularly high in the poorest countries of Central and Eastern Europe that are EU member states. We have uh, to remember that those countries that are not EU member states will not really uh, receive uh, comparable funds. But those who are, and a large chunk of, of these countries are already EU members, Uh, will profit. And here, especially, as I said, the poorest ones, so Bulgaria, Croatia, Romania, uh, will gain a lot, at least from what we know uh, are the earmarked funds. Now, it is a different question whether these countries will have the capacities to actually really materialize investment supported by these funds. And I think that this that will be uh, the crucial thing to look at in the years uh, to come. And uh, hopefully also the commission uh, will, will help maybe um, to facilitate projects and, um, and really make these funds being available to the states, to uh, the municipalities on different levels, partly also to, to, to private um, actors. And uh, uh, yeah, hopefully a, a large uh, share of it Will, will really find its way uh, into those economies. However, there are good reasons to believe that there might be problems. So, so this is something that also policymakers in the region have to, to take care of. You mentioned the green transition. One of the biggest projects of the European Commission is uh, the European Green Deal. Now, your idea of the European Silk Road, which dates back to 2018, way before that Green Deal was presented and way before the current situation um, 
emerged, seems to have a lot of possibilities to connect with this Green Deal. Um, and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your study and the possibilities here? Indeed, uh, at the core of our suggested European Silk Road is a high-speed rail network that stretches on the northern and the southern route. Uh, the, the core line would be something of between Lyon uh, uh, going all the way through the main metropolitan areas in northern parts of continental Europe, uh, all the way to Moscow, connecting really the big metropolis. Um, and um, with extensions uh, uh, southwest, uh, all the way to Lisbon, in the east, all the way to the Kazakh border, uh, and the southern route from, uh, from northern Italy uh, through southern Germany and the Danube Valley, Valley, all the way to the Black Sea, and with uh, sea link extensions also into the southern Russian and, uh, and the Co uh, southern Caucasian uh, areas. But I mean, clearly, these are if you wish, colorful lines on, on a map. Uh, uh, the, the core idea really is to probably start first uh, in, in, in central uh, member states of the Union, something between Paris and, and Berlin, um, uh, trying to connect them, uh, as I said, with high-speed rail networks. It would be an important uh, measure to fulfill the Paris uh, climate goals. Uh, the Union uh, should reduce 90% uh, emissions uh, in, in transport sector. And an essential issue will be to reduce uh, particularly uh, air transport, which, uh, which is very much behind uh, a large chunk of the emissions. Uh, how can you reduce that? Well, one possibility would be to move uh, to high-speed rail. The technology is actually quite an old one. And while Europe has been jumping from one crisis into the other, partly also self-inflicted with, with the austerity, 2011, for instance, uh, China has been building uh, now roughly 80% of the, uh, of the world's uh, high-speed rail network. And there is also a very interesting study uh, by the European Court of Auditors uh, about the European high-speed rail network, and they really say there is none. Uh, there are only uh, a few uh, national attempts, like the TGV system in France and uh, Talgo in, in Spain, on certain lines like Barcelona, Madrid, and uh, I don't know, Paris, Marseille, and so on. And, and maybe there are a few extensions that cross border, but in, in essence, there is no European network. So what we really suggest is a project with EU value added, with European value added, crossing many, many borders. And it is clear this is extremely difficult to, to, to be built. If at all, I, th I guess, and our suggestion goes to, to have one European uh, Silk Road Trust, a big company that would uh, issue bonds uh, and uh, uh, there could be public guarantees for those bonds. and. And those could um, help to actually construct and operate uh, something like that. Um, as you said, in 2018, we had a study that looked at the costs of such a project and um, uh, the economic effects. In 2019, uh, we had another study that looked at uh, the organizational issues to be taken care of, particularly also the financing. And uh, we had then also uh, yeah, uh, a study in 2020 
together with our sister institutes, the IMK in Düsseldorf and uh, the OFC uh, in Paris, a part of the Sciences Po, where we reiterated uh, the idea. And, um, and most recently now, we have a study with colleagues from the Central European University where we actually calculated the, uh, the effects on, on CO2 emissions uh, of the introduction of the core line from, from Lyon to, to Moscow. And uh, we come up with CO2 uh, emission savings of uh, roughly 10% of, a, of uh, a year in the EU. This is not a lot. This is uh, taking into account 60 years of uh, operation of such a high-speed rail line. However, it's, it's not nothing. Uh, and also, we only looked at the passenger uh, transport. If you would take uh, care of, uh, of um, freight transport, probably double uh, the amount could, of CO2 could be saved and so on. And, and obviously, if you have a bigger network, more could be uh, done. Uh, we know basically that uh, it is essential to cut travel times to below four hours. That is kind of a magic border. If you are below four hours, you will uh, have a, a quite a big chunk of passengers going away from plane to train. And uh, hence, uh, relations uh, on routes of around up to 1,000 kilometers, if you have a train that is on average uh, going 250 to 300 kilometers per hour, then you have good chances to actually have this modal shift away from plane to train and I think that is something that we have to do now uh, very soon and invest in, 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 in fast trains. Do you think that the current situation that arises through the pandemic builds a momentum for this, that there is an um, additional uh, awareness for the necessity of this transition? Because when we look at the liberalization of the um, train um, market and operational, but also uh, producing the, the tracks on a European level, and these uh, initiatives have been undergoing for quite some time. We have three and four railway packages that have been adopted, but um, it has not led to this um, further investment and especially fostering cross-border Uh, train transport, be it uh, persons or freight. Yeah, no, I mean uh, absolutely. The the strategy so far was very much looking for efficiency gains, and to some extent, in some areas, this was actually uh, happening. For instance, in the in the services that are offered on trains, like Wi-Fi and so on. State monopolists uh, before said, you know no way this won't work and so on but competition helped to improve those services maybe uh, at least on the main lines however in 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 many other ways uh, these reforms were not very helpful and uh, it actually led partly to a, a further uh, increase of various standards uh, all these private companies have different security standards and what have you uh, and exactly we should actually have a big european market maybe with a few uh, competitors but whether it really makes sense on the national level to have different competitors. I mean, the private sector will basically look at the two or three main lines which are profitable and the rest uh, will not be uh, really gaining uh, from this. So I think we really have to think now big in, in European terms. And I think there has been 
also with the help of the pandemic, which showed to us very much how connected, <laughs> in fact, we all are. Once we, we lose the connections, we, we see that we actually miss them and, and, and that, 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 that we are actually quite strong and that we have to do something uh, about that and also think beyond the current crisis, which I'm sure will end one day. We might still see the last wave being maybe the, the most worrisome, but but I, I hope that um, next summer uh, the, the situation will improve uh, dramatically and that we might find a way out of this pandemic. Um, and, and then we have a lot of other problems. Then we have very high levels of indebtedness. We will see the necessity to generate growth. Um, but we know, and I think by now also new generations of politicians are in power, um, we know that we have to do something about uh, the climate change issue and uh, digital transformation and uh, a number of other things and that we need to grow out of this crisis and we need to uh, do green investment in order to facilitate uh, um, uh, the fight against uh, climate change because I think the, the zero growth um, option is not a politically viable option that we have and hence there is uh, really a necessity to do this and I think uh, there is really now a, a change in, in, in the overall picture that might have been, again, facilitated uh, by the pandemic. When there are big and drastic changes proposed, you almost always are automatically facing reserved uh, reactions, uh, especially in politics. Um, now, you have a, a, a very big proposal in the I think a very great potential for development in this. However, um, can you tell us a little bit about the feedback that you have uh, received, especially when it comes maybe to, to certain member states? Because uh, I could imagine that this interconnectedness um, is still not something where each and every government sees the benefits of, of fostering cross-border high-speed uh, connections. Clearly, there are very different uh, reactions to this uh, proposal, which on the one hand can be seen as a very utopian <laughs> proposal. On the other hand, given that there are examples uh, that exist, uh, but these things were built, it, it's not <laughs> completely impossible. Um, it's uh, interesting to note, for instance, within the European Commission, maybe the old parts of the Commission, obviously those people who have been dealing with the trans-European networks that are there since the 1990s, and I mean that a really important uh, support for creating uh, um, transport networks in, in Europe. But these uh, piecemeal investments. The funds so far also have not been huge. Uh, I think since the pandemic, we really started to think in trillions and not anymore in millions and billions. Uh, we started to think in, in, in a dimension that is relevant for the whole continent or at least for the European Union. And that is a difference to, to, to earlier times. And uh, I have to say, uh, the politicians we have been contacting, they come from all political uh, groups, basically, uh, the full spectrum, uh, where we found supporters. Uh, we particularly try to target uh, German and French uh, politicians also, given that these are the biggest member states. Obviously, if this uh, should fly, then um, France and Germany have to 
to support it. Uh, fairly good reactions, uh, I think, uh, also uh, supported by uh, some uh, colleagues who were writing um, newspaper articles on this. Uh, we had a meet. We had a, a panel in Brussels uh, when we presented the second uh, paper in in late uh, 2019, and uh, that was very fruitful discussion. Uh, and uh, just a few weeks later, uh, there was an editorial in the Financial Times that was very positive and supporting our our suggestion. Uh, which made us very proud and uh, gave us uh, the power to to go on and and uh, continue with this. And um, as I said, we had another uh, publication jointly with the French and the German Institute and in 2020, and and now most recently with the CEU colleagues uh, on this very important uh, issue of um, the the emission effects. And uh, we will continue with colleagues from the CEU uh, also next year where we will look more into the freight uh, transport issues. So we, we will uh, continue with this. We see a lot of uh, positive response uh, also in, in media. Um, I mean, we are a non-profit organization. We are, uh, we are not a huge institute. So we do this pro bono. Uh, so our, our resources are limited, but there are also um, others who, who support us and, and uh, who, who want to do uh, something about it. And, and we are obviously happy to cooperate also with anyone uh, who wants to join forces. Mario, thank you so much. I think, uh, especially in these times, utopias are necessary. And um, the utopia of uh, a European Silk Road has a lot of potential to become a reality. It has a lot of benefits. We learned a lot about it. Um, I think uh, we should uh, continue to see how this development uh, goes. We um, have the links to the study in uh, the show notes of this episode. But at the end of the episode, we always ask for a piece of art or literature um, that is connected to this topic. And I would also like to ask you if you have a recommendation for us. Maybe not a particular concrete piece, but uh, there is a colleague, he's a conductor, and uh, he uh, organizes the Silk Road Symphony Orchestra. Uh, you can uh, look up his website also. Um, and a number of other uh, initiatives um, uh, around music. Uh, and uh, I think, as you mentioned, part of the utopia of a European Silk Road is also that it is not only about economics, it's not only maybe about climate uh, and, and other uh, very material issues. It's also simply about connecting people across Europe, uh, also people who, who are in the cultural business, uh, musicians, painters, whoever, uh, uh, bring people closer together. And one has to say that Europe has lost a little bit of its narrative. It was uh, the EU uh, was uh, meant to be a peace project after uh, the horrible situation in after the Second World War. But the generations that have uh, lived and, and experienced uh, the Second World War or the the uh, immediate effects of it, partly they don't exist anymore. And uh, so we need maybe a new a new narrative. And I think. A big common European mission, 
like the European Silk Road, could be one of those uh, narratives that could uh, bring us uh, together. And in that sense, also uh, music and, and cultural activities along a European Silk Road uh, are very much welcome. Thank you very much. I think this is a wonderful recommendation. We will put the link also in the show notes. Um, Mario, once again, thank you very much for joining us today and uh, talking about your project and all the best for the future development. Thank you very much. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e.honteberry at idm.at The email is in the description below. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Erste Group. With the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek, and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing Emma Hunterberry, proofreading Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional actions, cooperation and expertise since 1953.